ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 16 this morning. If you haven't noticed, the balcony is complete. Um, all that we're going to do now is go get some ladders so that you can climb up there next Sunday. Bring some blankets so you can sit down. It'll be good to go. But uh, we're really at the midway point of Paul's letter uh, to the Colossian church. And last week we looked at verses 13 through 15 as the crescendo of the book's first half, that everything that God has done through his son Jesus has uh, given him victory where he has triumphed over every ruler, every authority. He's put them to open shame through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so really, it is the bedrock of our faith. And if you weren't here, I really do think that in order to understand the context of what we're going to talk about today, it would be helpful to you if you would go listen to that or watch it uh, just for contextual purposes, because every verse in Colossians really builds on the last. And so as we go through the book as a whole, it'll be very helpful if you kind of track with the themes and the structures that every verse sets out, even to understand the analogies that we're going to go through. And what we'll see today really is that we are meant to live our lives in celebration of what Jesus has done. Faith in Christ actually leads you to the work of applying the truth of Jesus to every single part of your life. And it's the work that some people fall short of. Therefore, when they do that, they begin to either form or fall for the lies of false teachers in verses 16 through 23, Paul leads the Colossians to apply the truth of the gospel to their lives so that they can begin to live out the practical implications of it. And so much of what we've talked about in this book so far has been really orthodoxy or right teaching. And what we're going to begin to transition into this week is what's called orthopraxy, theologically speaking, or you take the orthodox teaching, you take that right teaching, and you learn how to live a right lifestyle. And so he's going to spend the rest of this book showing just how the gospel impacts every day of your life. And by letting it do that, letting it have that effect is actually going to combat those pervasive false doctrines. Because if Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin and he rose from the dead, winning victory over sin and death, then his victory is certain. Nothing should be added to it, nor should anything be taken away from it. And so when people seek to take you captive by giving you an extra pathway to righteousness, you must refuse and even rebuke them in the name of Jesus as they are perverting the whole thing. And what we're really going to be delving into this morning is the topic of legalism. And the issue of legalism can be difficult to tackle because it requires you to put your thinking cap on, really. It requires you to kind of have the ability to walk and chew gum at the same time to understand how legalism is such a perversion of the gospel, yet God still commands you to obey him. There is obedience required of the Christian, but none of it makes you more righteous than you are made at the moment of your conversion to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want to begin reading in verse 16 of Colossians 2. 
He begins with the word therefore. And of course, whenever you see therefore, it is a vital element. And what he's saying there is in light of everything that we have just talked about, in light of Jesus triumphing over all of the rulers, all of the authorities, in light of the fact that he has put Satan and, and his demons to open shame, that there's nothing that they can do to you because of the triumph of Christ. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reasons by his sensuous mind. Number one this morning, you need to understand that legalism rejects the lordship of Jesus. Legalism rejects the lordship of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you must therefore reject legalism. But what is legalism? And so many people will look at you. If you say they need to be obedient to any command, they will label you a legalist. Some people will see the, the statement even in the first verse, let no one pass judgment on you, and they will put a period after that and not read the context of the judgment that they're talking on. And they'll just simply uh, quote to you Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, ignoring the context of the whole chapter. There's a lot of judgment in the Christian life, to be honest with you. And so legalism is not calling people to obedience. Legalism is not the expectation that you will live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. No, that's an expectation that the scripture gives you. Legalism is actually finding righteousness in your activity versus finding your righteousness in Christ. Because finding righteousness in activity is actually about robbing God of his glory and trying to give it to yourself or give it to another human being. The clearest application of this is the glory of self that so many people seek. Paul's premise about false teachers in Colossians 2.8 was actually to guard against false teachers taking them captive. But verse 16 actually makes practical what that is. It actually shows you how this can happen. Once you are in Christ through faith, you should not let any type of judgmentalism be the reason that you follow Jesus Christ. It's not that judgment is bad. It's that the wrong kind of judgment is bad. The Bible, as I said, especially the New Testament, is filled with not only judgment, but it is actually filled with how to exercise being judgmental in righteous ways rather than finding your righteousness in that judgment. When somebody makes the statement, no man can judge me, only God can judge me, that should be of no comfort. That should actually be more terrifying because God not only sees what I do, he sees why I did it. He can read my mind. That is a dangerous principle. Any effort that you put in to earning righteousness from God is the legalism that Paul is warning you against seeking in this life. Jesus declares us righteous through his work on the cross and in the resurrection. Therefore, because of that, there is no more righteousness for me to earn if he has declared me completely righteous. God, in his righteousness, made the decision to gift it to us. Therefore, there is nothing left for us to earn. And so what Paul is warning us against is the bad judgment that would lead someone away from the gospel of Jesus. This is the cultic 
type of judgment that he's been warning against, whether it be a practice to add, a sacrament to follow, or observances that are not attached to God's work through Jesus. It is a man-centered attempt at making the self righteous. In that sense, that's why I call it a rejection of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because the lordship of Jesus Christ is all about the gospel and not about my attempt to earn righteousness. Romans 3.26 makes it very clear, the Apostle Paul again writing, that God uses the gospel to bring himself glory by redeeming man from sin himself. He says that the gospel was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it starts with the premise, God is just. It's one of his attributes. It's who he is. You will never find perfect justice apart from Jesus Christ. You will never find it apart from who God is. But not only did God desire just for him to be just, he made the decision that he would bring himself ultimate glory by implementing his justice for my sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means by he's also the justifier. And so God, in his justness, did not ignore sin. No, he found justice for sin on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty. Christ absorbing 100% of the wrath that I deserve, 100% of the condemnation for my sin that I deserve. And through that, God desired to declare sinners as righteous through the righteousness of Christ. There was never a moment, and there has never been a moment, in the existence of humanity where we could earn our own righteousness. It was always God's plan to do the work himself. Therefore, when we talk about the issue of justification, we are talking about a legal declaration that God has made through his son about me that I could not do myself. I am a sinner, but God in his justice through his love, has declared because of his son, I am righteous. There's nothing I can add to that. I will ruin it if you give me the shot. But God, in his perfect justice, has declared it true. Therefore, I rest in the righteousness of Christ. I don't seek to earn it. I don't seek to make it better. I don't seek to make it more righteous. I can't. It is perfect in the way that it was carried out. It is perfect in the way that it has been applied to my life through faith. Therefore, there is nothing I nor you can ever do to make yourself righteous or to earn the favor of God. There is only what Christ has done that earns you the favor of God through justification. Therefore, God doesn't seek to give you the opportunity to prove your righteousness. That would be to give you glory. God's intention, excuse me, in the gospel is to display his power and glory for all to see as he maintains his justice in declaring us righteous or justifying those who've sinned against him. And this is where Judaism went wrong. And why those who sought to convince the Colossians to be circumcised and convert to Judaism on top of the gospel were actually seeking to rob God of his glory. In Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul warns that this is not a small matter. 
He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now note what verse 4 says. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. That's pretty serious. He says that if you accept the false teaching of legalism, if you accept that you have to be circumcised, a work that you do by your hands, if you accept that you must earn God's favor through keeping the law, you are severed from Christ. Friends, legalism is a serious matter. To give in to these false teachings of legalism is a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. But understand, there's a little legalist in every heart. You want to prove something about yourself. You want to earn your keep. You want to show people that you are good enough. I mean, in our culture especially, this is pervasive in every element. You only need to look at the fact that whenever you put any post on social media, you will stare at it saying, why hasn't anyone liked it yet? Why hasn't anyone shared my brilliance with others yet? Why hasn't anyone given me a heart? Why hasn't anyone commented? And then you take it down. It's like, well, I guess it wasn't good enough. So what's actually going on inside of you is this self-centeredness that you're trying to earn something in this world. You're trying to earn something from someone else. You want the acceptance of others just the way you want the acceptance of God. And if you are not careful, you will invent a system that you are not righteous until you've earned acceptance. Every single one of us struggle with it, even if we deny it. And this, of course, is not, as I just said, limited to circumcision. This is not just Jewish heresy. There are Christian legalisms. Anything that you do to earn righteousness, or I would go as far to say anything that you do to prove your righteousness, is a rejection of the lordship of Jesus in an attempt to take his glory and give it to yourself. I have seen people do wonderful things. I've seen people help many, many other people and they've done it for the most self-centered of reasons. And therefore, God didn't get any glory out of it. You can do a great thing in this life and if you do it to show how good you are, how much moral fiber you have and for the applause of other people, you have your reward. Every action must transcend me and go to the glory of God for it to be of any spiritual benefit. Friend, you can spend your entire life helping thousands of people in an extremely moral way. And you can have the whole world look at you and say, you are an example of everything everyone else should be. You have done so many good things. And if you did it for the glory of self, all it will earn you is eternal condemnation. All it will earn you is the wrath of God because you didn't live for the glory of God. You lived for the glory of self. And that's why I caution so many people. Stop trying to prove something to everybody. Stop trying to prove your worth. 
Stop caring so much what other people think about you and say about you because what will ultimately happen is you will build a life where you are more fearful of people than you are of God. And I will tell you, there is not a single thing other people can do to your eternity, but there is plenty that God can do to your eternity. So whose glory are you living for, friend? If you live for the glory of self, you will never be able to worship God. And yet, so many of you will do something this very week, even in light of what we've talked about, to prove your righteousness to other people. Friend, I accepted a long time ago, I have no righteousness of my own. Therefore, it is a fool's errand to try to prove it. It's a lie. The only righteousness that Steve Gentry has is the righteousness gifted to me through the obedience of God, the Son, Jesus Christ, and his life, death, and resurrection. And he lives making intercession for me right now. Understand, you can very quickly turn a good thing into a proving my righteousness thing, and it becomes a legalistic standard that does not give glory to God. If it's not a biblical thing because of the glory of Jesus Christ, then you need to repent of it. When I was growing up, people were proving their righteousness because they used a certain version of the Bible. I've seen people in adulthood prove they're more righteous than everybody else because they have six kids when everybody else has three kids. I mean, friends, I dealt with it in this church. There was controversy because some people thought that they were righteous because they used a certain type of diaper while everybody else used the less righteous disposable standard. Some people find righteousness in breastfeeding while all the peasants use formula. What are we trying to prove? Who gave you these standards? Friend, you can have 18 children at home and you're going to split hell wide open if it's about your righteousness. But you can also have no kids at home and split hell wide open if that's your standard of self-centered righteousness. It is about Jesus or it is unrighteous. Where did we get ourselves to a place where there was any other standard than Jesus Christ? You can't prove your righteousness by the way that you dress. You can't prove you're righteous by the standard of your hair. You can't prove your righteousness. I mean, I was in a, um, a tradition where people were bringing their televisions and burning them in a big pile in the field behind the church to prove just how righteous they were. All I saw was a pile of money where I could have watched cartoons. What a loss. <laughs> Friends, the culture around us is seeking to do this to us as well. Just a few years ago, none of us knew what critical race theory was, but it's the Marxist ideology of the oppressor, oppressed posture and owing others because your people group has had a history of oppression over another people group. And if you are in the majority culture, then you have to earn righteousness by divesting of your culture. Friend, I know I'm supposed to divest of my whiteness to be righteous, but I'm tr still trying to figure out how to quit that. It's become a clarion call even for Christians to make themselves more righteous. Anything apart from the gospel that is an attempt to make you earn righteousness is false doctrine. I don't care where it comes from. Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament picture and promise. Note that in the text, if you look 
at uh, verse eight, uh, verse 17 rather, he uses two very important words that can be confusing if you don't study them. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come. But here's the important phrase, but the substance belongs to Christ. That is a statement that every shadow in the Old Testament was a sign meant to point you to what Christ would fulfill on the cross. Now, he specifically is going to use the examples of food and drink and the observance of religious, of religious days of Sabbath. Paul states that those Old Testament requirements, though, have been fulfilled in Christ, just as the sacrificial system they were a part of. If you look at Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, I love the way Paul puts this. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul is more or less saying, if you want to observe a day as special, good for you. But don't put that burden on anybody else's shoulders. You're not God. Now, if you come to Membership Matters, you will find out, I love the 1689 Confession of Faith. I think it's a great guiding document for good doctrine. But I always preface that and qualify it with the fact that it is not inerrant like the Bible is inerrant. And it's because of this type of standard. And the 1689, it does that to Sunday. It basically refers to Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. Friend, Christian Sabbath is Christ. It's not a day. And so if you want to legalistically hold everyone accountable and say they must only worship Christ on that day, here's the problem. There's no biblical standard for that. You can search the whole Bible. I promise you, you will never find a verse that says that God, because of the resurrection, woke up one day and said, I'm tired of the Sabbath being on Saturday. It's now going to be on Sunday. And so now Christians have a Sabbath. No, it doesn't exist. It's not, it's not, it's not the Sabbath day. And so people should, it is a sin, I believe, to refer to Sunday as the Sabbath day because you are creating a law that God has not made. But here's why walking and chewing gum at the same time can be complicated on the issue of legalism. Why do we meet on Sunday? Why are we here? Why are we doing this then? By the way, I still think you should come here on Sunday. I think it's a really, really good thing to do, all right? But here's why. We meet on Sunday because we've been doing that since the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20, they started meeting on the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead because it is a memorial to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. But here's the key. Sunday still isn't the Sabbath. And so I'm not going to try to guilt you of it. What I am going to tell you is you are actually commanded to gather with other Christians regularly for corporate worship. And since we do it on Sunday... You should come meet with us on Sunday and worship Jesus Christ. That's the tension. One of them is a command that God has given. The other is not a command that God has given in Christ. That's why number two this morning, obedience to God is not legalism. Obedience to God is not legalism. If legalism is rejection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ... Obedience should be seen as submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And they are very different. Because just as you should reject legalism, you should also reject what is called antinomianism. 
Antinomianism means against law. It means that if you are in Christ, there's a whole thread of heresy about it, then you are not bound to obey anything that God has said. Therefore, you don't have to live by a righteous standard that God has given. You do not need to obey God at all in Christ. And that is just as heretical as legalism is. It's just the polar opposite uh, side of it. Yes, God has given you commands to obey. The law of God is to be seen as the basis by which morals are to be formed because the law of God was never the problem. Our inability to live to the righteous standard of the law is the problem. So without God's law, the foundation of morality simply cannot be understood or fully known. And if you do not understand that the law of God is still to be followed, you will not have anything of Christ in culture around you. You will just have chaos. That's why the ideal, judge not lest you be judged, is so foolish. You have to judge people to have society. That's why we build prisons. There are some people, if we let them loose in society, they would do nothing but victimize everyone through their unrighteous lifestyle. Therefore, God has given us a standard of judgment in His law that is still applicable in Christ. So which is it, some might retort? Are we required to obey or not? I think James 2.17 is very helpful, puts it into perspective. Half-brother of Jesus writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith is shown through the work in our lives. Now, Colossians chapter 3, which we're going to get into next week, will show the effect that the new life in Christ has. But here, Paul is speaking of a foundational principle that that is to be built on. We do not obey Jesus so that God will love us. We obey him because we are confident that God loves us completely in Christ. And those are two very different things. It's a different thing to try to earn someone's love than to live in light of their love. When you're seeking to earn their love, there is the possibility of condemnation if they will not give it to you. In Christ, that is not a sufficient standard. In Christ, you have his love already. Therefore, all of my obedience is because I want to show how great the God who loves me already, the God who has gifted me with his righteousness is. We do not gain faith through works. We show our faith by our works. Verse 19 contains a command to obey. Note what he says here. He says, and excuse me, he talks about those who would have them legalistic. They're puffed up without reason by sensuous minds and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. But note, if you are not held accountable by God to obey certain commands, then why did he give you a command there? What was the command? Hold fast to the head. That's a command. The head is Jesus Christ. He says you have to commit. You have to be committed to the standard of living that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And so that is a command that you are to obey. But you don't do it to earn his righteousness. As I've said, he's already given it to you. You do it to show his righteousness. One that shows that we have already been declared righteous in Jesus and we are now alive through the power of his spirit and we live as those who are already alive. That is very different. 
Righteous activity is the outcome of grace. It is not the earning of favor. He notes at the end of verse 19 that we grow with a growth that is from God. That is, again, a statement of grace. This is a statement of the source of the strength of our obedience to God's commands. It is the power of God working through our lives of faith made possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, understand that God commands us not to be legalistic. And that's not counterintuitive. That's not a contradictory statement. If you're not to be legalistic, do you not understand that that's a command you're to obey? Therefore, even in rejecting legalism, we have a command. Therefore, God commands obedience to many things. And the way that I love to, I like to explain this, that was very interesting. Might seem odd to you, but I want you to track with me for a minute. It's from Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. It's right before the apostle Peter preaches the gospel to a Gentile for the first time and where we see Gentiles begin to be grafted into the church of Jesus Christ. It says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, Peter fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, he objects, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This has been something that baffles so many people. I get questions about it sometimes. But the question is, why does God hate barbecue in the Old Testament? I don't know if you've ever had a tasty pig, but I kind of like it. It's one of my favorite parts of being a Gentile. All right, I get to get those baby back ribs, all right? But here in the book of Acts, something fascinating is happening because there's a lot of people who even ask, why are Christians allowed to ignore the dietary uh, restrictions of the Old Testament? Why can we go to Red Lobster and eat shrimp? It's shellfish. You're not supposed to eat shellfish. It's unclean. This takes us back to where it says there's the shadow of the law and then there's the substance, which is Christ. The entire dietary restrictions of the Old Testament were given to Israel to show their uniqueness and to show that God has standards of what is clean and what is unclean. But here's the key. It was a shadow so that God would have the perfect analogy to send to Peter in Acts chapter 10 to show Peter, Peter, I want you to go preach the gospel to people that you would consider unclean because I'm going to make them clean through faith in Jesus Christ. And so God unfolds this miraculous sheet and a trance from heaven and inside of it. And understand, Peter is a Jew. Not only is Peter a Jew, Peter is a proud Jew. And so Peter's rejection of it is, I'm too pious. I've revered your law. I've earned your righteousness in some way. And he says, Peter, kill the pig, eat the pig. Peter, kill the shellfish, eat the shellfish. And Peter is offended by God's gospel. And Peter says, nope, I've never eaten anything common, never eaten anything unclean. I'm good enough, Lord. And God looks to him and says, be careful 
I'm going to judge your legalistic heart if you don't do what I'm telling you to do. And the liberation from legalism, God does not free Peter from obedience. God gives him the righteous standard of obedience. Never call common what God calls clean. And if Peter had disobeyed at this point, he would have missed out on the opportunity to go to the house of Cornelius, preach the gospel to a Gentile, see the entire household come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then a Gentile revival, never again seen, started that spread the gospel over the known world at that time. See, friends, God's standards are never arbitrary. There is a purpose and there is a meaning. But this is why the Old Testament must be understood through the lens of the New Testament. The substance belongs to Christ. Whenever you look at the Old Testament and say, why, why, why? Why is this the way it is? Why is that the way it is? It's a shadow that's ultimately to be fulfilled completely in the work of Jesus Christ because the gospel brought about the life that God always meant to have and the glory that he wanted by being both the just and the justifier. The people of God are now Jew and Gentile together in Christ. One people from all nations, the church. See, the tension there for so many is real. That's why 2 Peter 1.3 explains that the order by which things come is, excuse me, is that God in his power has granted these things to us and now we live by the knowledge that God has given us to his glory. Not to my glory, to his glory. I am righteous in Christ because God has declared it. Not because I deserve it. Not because I've done some religious activity over the course of my life. I can tell you, I have been in church since the day I was born, and none of it has earned me any righteousness. I'm glad for it. I'm thankful that I've always known the name of Jesus Christ, but not a single ounce of my religious activity has earned me the favor of God. What has earned me the favor of God is that I realize what a sick sinner I am and how glorious Jesus paying the penalty for my sin on the cross is. That is my righteousness, and I don't have another one. Friend, you spend five minutes with me, you find out I'm pretty unrighteous. I mean, you, you guys love that we had fallback day. Everybody loves it. I prefer the one where we lose an hour of sleep. Because when we lose an hour of sleep, I don't wake up at 4.15 wide awake. <laughs> Cussing the world, all right? Because I'm like, now I'm awake in the middle of the night. So I've just had more hours awake today than I have asleep. Friend, you are not righteous. But here's the big catch. Why aren't these legalistic practices good? Verse 23, skip a few verses. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Anytime the Bible says something has an appearance of wisdom, it's actually mocking it. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity of the body. But here's the key. But they are of no value. Why? Because they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Why is legalism so dangerous? Because it doesn't help you obey God. It doesn't help you repent of sin. It doesn't 
help you be restored to the vision that God has for you. It just makes the sinner more sinful. It is useless in helping us deal with our sin because Jesus has dealt with it perfectly on the cross. Therefore, number three this morning, Christian freedom is a celebration of the sufficiency of Jesus. Christian freedom ultimately isn't about what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do. That's an immature way of looking at Christian freedom. Christian freedom is really just about celebrating the sufficiency of Christ. And so whenever you're eating some good barbecue, just celebrate that you can eat pork because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Next time you're at Red Lobster, the unending shrimp feast, if you like something like that, every single one of them to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Because if you have died with Christ, you have victory in Christ, and that can never be taken away from you. Because you didn't do anything to earn it. Jesus did it all. Paul begins in verse 20 to end the chapter with an if-then statement. Look at what he says. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and like I said, severity to the body, but they are of no value. If you are in Christ, why do you act like you aren't? See, Christ, excuse me, Paul begins with a statement asking a question of inventory more than anything else. He says, if you are in Christ. In other words, if your whole life is about proving your value, if your whole life is about proving everybody wrong about you, if your whole life is about proving how worthy, proving how righteous, proving you can meet the standard, Paul wants you to stop for a second and say, am I in Christ? Am I in Christ? If I'm living by nothing more than standards that I've made up and proving a righteousness that I can never attain, am I in Christ at all? But then he notes, if you take that inventory and come out on the other side and say, yes, I am in Christ. He says, stop listening to every false teacher that would convince you you aren't. Elemental spirits of the world is actually a restatement of something that was said in Colossians 2.8. The term there is the root word for stoicism or a self-denial. It's sometimes translated as the basic principles of the world according to pagan religion. And this phrase, Paul is saying, if Christ has paid the penalty for sin and death, why would the Christian consider for a moment the power of pagan practices as though they have any? He says, do not handle, do not touch. These are regulations of superstitious practices that would label the physical world as evil and contain a curse that you can only rid yourself of if you transcend the physical. This is Gnosticism. We have a version of this Gnosticism in our world that would tell the people of our world that if you feel like your physical body isn't the one you were supposed to be born in, you transcend the physical by ridding yourself of gender and hocking on a new one. 
See, it's the same form of Gnosticism. It's telling you that there's something wrong with the physical body that God has made. It's telling you there's something wrong with the way that God has made you. And the only way that you can get over that which is wrong is to deny the physical and reach a nirvanic plane of transcending being. It's false religion. Christ's victory is complete and final. It is perfect. Do not submit to the rules of this world. You must submit to the rule of Christ and Christ alone because self-made religious activity. I like that he says that. It denies the sufficiency of Jesus. People have been making stuff up that I'm supposed to do for years. And I don't do any of it because I don't need to. Because God hasn't called me to. Because the word doesn't direct me to. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. You want to know why I don't worry what people think about me? Because only Jesus stands between me and the Father. You don't. I know some of you want to. But sorry, that position's already been taken by the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And you can't do that for me. So why would I make my life all about proving how great I am to you? Be liberated from that. Experience the Christian freedom of waking up every day and celebrating the sufficiency of Christ because he is enough for me. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Nothing more to earn. Nothing more to prove. So here's the question. How are you going to live? Who are you going to submit to? Whatever God has made clean is clean. Enjoy it. When people attempt to make up new laws to make you feel guilty or there's some new practice that will help you transcend the physical and reach a nirvanic high that the scripture and the gospel haven't been able to do, stop for a second and just consider, does this make God more glorious or will this just be an attempt to make me look more glorious and lead me away from Jesus to something new? Stop buying into the hype of man-made religious practices and trust the gospel of God's word. Jesus is enough. God has given us a clear revelation in scripture. It is sufficient. And quite frankly, I don't need any more rules in my life. I just don't, I have enough. I have enough because Christ is enough. A few application points this morning. Reject the temptation to self-righteousness. It's a fool's errand. I've been there. I've done that. I'm tempted to do that all the time. Never ends well. Secondly, refuse to submit to man-made standards of righteousness. Just refuse. Just don't do it. Some people get mad about it. Yeah. What do I care? Thirdly, rejoice in the sufficiency of Christ. I'm too busy celebrating that he is enough to listen to anyone that says he isn't. Fourthly, submit to the lordship of Christ. 
He does have a standard by which he wants you to live righteously, but it's only because he's already made you righteous. And then finally, where Jesus has made you free, live free. Don't live by man-made standards. Enjoy the good blessings that God has given into his good physical world and live for the glory of God.